Hey, hey, people of Earth, it's time to enter the Spoilerverse via our secret portal at the exclusive Arctic Club in beautiful downtown Seattle with our hosts, John and Kenrick. Welcome to Spoiler Country. Hey, if you're listening to our show for the first time and you're on one of the social medias that we're on, like Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, any of those kinds of things, you should always check us out on Spoilerverse.com. But... If you want to keep up with our latest episodes, you should bring out your smartphone, get into your favorite podcatcher, find Spoiler Country, and hit subscribe. Then you'll get all our new stuff. And if you want to reach out to us, you can do that in two ways. You can call us or use the voicemail at 707-656-2080. Again, 707-656-2080. Or you can shoot us an email at spoilercountry at gmail.com. The cult of the Spoilerverse is alive and well. Welcome back. Spoiler Country. I'm Ken Cregan. That right there is Mr. Horsley. And today on the show, <laughs> I can see Johnny right now. So pulling that out, it's just even more fun because you could just see him like looking back and forth. It's like, is this guy going to finish or what? <laughs> Tom Ruger, isn't it? It is, man. And and if you don't know who Tom is, because I didn't, I had to look it up, but you definitely know Tom's work. Tom Created the Tiny Toon Adventures. He the created what? Animaniacs. Tiny Toon Adventures? Yep. Animaniacs. Wow. Peeking in the Brain and Hysteria. He's an animator. He's a screenwriter. He's a storyboard artist. He's a lyricist. The dude's done a lot of stuff. And he comes on and he sits down with, with Jeff and they chat about Batman. He, he was a writer on the Batman animated series for a while. Nice. nice. And I mean, they did a lot of stuff. Oh, that's cool. Well, you want us to get into it? Let's just jump into it, man, because this is a good one. All right. Well, here's Tom and Jeff in their own words. Hello, listeners of Spoiler Country. Today on the show, we had the fantastic Tom Ruger. How are we doing, Mr. Oh, I'm, Ruger? I'm good. How about you? I'm doing very well. I, before the interview, I was looking up some of um, your history in animation. You've been part of so many fantastic shows over, without, without aging you too much, about 40 <laughs> years. But I mean, it's, it's such an extraordinary, extraordinary career. And as we go into some of the shows that you've been a part of, how... How, when did your love for animation start? And did you have, what were your, your early, early inspirations for it? Well, I, I loved the magic of animation from the first time I saw uh, cartoons on TV. I really, I didn't understand how they were making the, the drawings move around and, and uh, how they would, you know, how could they possibly figure out how to draw it over the background? And, and anyway. I loved, I loved watching Huckleberry Hound and Yogi Bear shows, which were very early. You know, we're talking about 1959, 1960, quick drama garage show. So they were on in the early evening when my mom was making dinner. So we'd be busy watching the cartoons and she'd be busy making dinner. And it was like a perfect setup. And I would sit there on the floor with a pad of paper and some crayons and I, I would draw the characters as I saw them on the, on the TV. And my parents encouraged uh, me to continue with that. And uh, so I, I love cartoons and I love drawing. And I, I would make stories up in my room, different, you know, adventures with the cartoon characters. So I, I loved it. And I wanted to do cartoons from the very, very beginning. So, so later on when you attended Dartmouth College, did you was animation or art your focus, or what? Did you have a separate focus uh, when you attended? Yeah, we at Dartmouth at that point didn't really have a, a film study, a film program, uh, a major. You couldn't have a film major, but there was a film study program led by uh, Maury Rapp and Ray Forey and some other great teachers, professors, and so. They, you know, if you wanted to pursue film or video or make stories, film them, animate them, they, they were very encouraging. The Arthur and Lily Mayer Foundation gave a small grant each year to a student that wanted to make a film. And I was fortunate enough to get the grant one year. And with that money, I, it, helped, it helped to make uh, a cartoon I made called The Premiere of Platypus Duck. And which took me about 
<laughs> two years of my college life, <laughs> which was uh, it really, it really put a crimp in my style. <laughs> it's a lot of work, but that's what I, I wanted to do. And I, after college, I, I took that film and came out to Los Angeles and got a job at Hanna-Barbera. So were your parents supportive of your goal of entering animation or did they want you to do something more? My, I don't know if sensible is the right word, but more maybe safe. They, they wanted me to stay East. My, my family, I grew up in New Jersey and my brother worked, my, one of my brothers worked in New York and the other one was in New Jersey. I think my parents wanted me to stay East. So they were encouraging me to go into advertising where, which was, you know, the most comparable thing to animation that was back there. There wasn't a lot of animation being done. And I, I interviewed at a bunch of different advertising agencies and, you know, they were all kind of jerking me around. So at some point, and I was also roofing, I was working for my other brother, Jim, in a construction company. And I was doing a lot of, you know, I was roofing. I was, and I, I kept falling off the roofs because, uh, because <laughs> I kept thinking about cartoon ideas and I just would like blank out and I'd walk off the roof and I, I, I made a, I crashed a few times into people's homes. So uh, oh, no. after at one time, I really just kind of just screwed my neck up on the, during the crash. So within a month of that, I, I drove out to Los Angeles. So, so that was, so you almost were like a cartoon character the way you were doing like pratfalls off. Yeah, no, there, were, there were some, I definitely had my head, elsewhere. I did not plan on making a career of, of that particular roofing job. So as you as you said, your first cartoon was the premiere of yes. Post Duck. Where did the idea come from and what was the cartoon about? And is it available for anyone yeah, to watch? Yeah, you can go to the YouTube channel, a Tom Ruger Cartoonatics, pretty easy to find. And you can see the premiere of Platypus Duck, a, kind of a, not a great print of it, but that's that's the current video state that it's in. I, I can probably get it fixed up in the future. So so when you made Plasma Duck, I assume you were doing the animation where you also was there also voice and sound? Did you have help doing it? Is this literally did you handle all aspects of production? Well, you know, I wrote the little story which such as it is and sort of sort of a history of of planet Earth through the point of view of the duck-billed platypus. So it starts like billions nice. of years ago and it takes us to modern day and a threat of <laughs> nuclear explosions at the very end. Which is, while I drew all of it and colored most of it and did the backgrounds and the, the animation, I did certainly have help. Well, Parker McDonald, a good friend of mine, did all the music, and he went on to become a, a singer-songwriter, among other things. And Brian Fold did the voice of the announcer, and Barry Braverman was crucial in the editing, and so many people helped. And they saw that they saw that my life my life was going to go down the tubes <laughs> if they didn't help me. I know my 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 mom and my girlfriend painted cells, and anyway, a lot of people helped a lot. So it must have been fantastic for your resume. And you went from platypus duck to um, you broke then you broke into a writer. For Gilligan's Planet. Well, yeah, I, I started at Hanna-Barbera and I animated there. I was assistant animator and animator for two years at Hanna-Barbera. I worked on Godzilla and the new Fred and Barney show and Scooby. And then, then I shifted over to Filmation where I, I worked. I, I became a writer at Filmation and wrote a bunch of different shows, Flash Gordon and, and Tarzan and uh, Black Star. What was the one you 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 mentioned? The the one oh, um, yeah, Gilligan's Planet. Planet. That's the last show I worked on when I was at Filmation. I was sort of hurrying out the door at that point, and but I did get the actors to sign my script. I think I went Journey to the Center of Gilligan's Planet was one of the ones I wrote, and I got Jim Backus and and you know Bob Denver and Alan Hale and all the actors to nice. sign that script. So. For anyone who wants to get into animation, don't do it. Um, don't do it. Don't, any do level, it. don't do it. <laughs> I have a great, I have a great uh, Wizard of Id here. I'm, I'm looking at it right now. I'm going to read it to you. I can't. Uh, you, okay. you don't have the picture, but it's it's a peasant is walking toward a, a barn where it says "Help wanted" and there are a bunch of horses horses like looking out of the barn, and he goes into the barn, and uh, there are horses in the background. He says, "I'd like the job." It says "Help wanted." And Sir Rodney is there, 
And Sir Rodney asked the peasant, do you have any experience in cleaning out stables? And the peasant says, no, I've been in animation for the past three years. And Ro Sir Rodney hands him the pitchfork and says, that's close enough. Get to work. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> I mean, it, it, I, I would imagine it's an incredibly difficult field to break into. I mean, it sounds like, though, you kind of entered almost immediately into and you and you were and you've always had success I, it, I was very lucky I was definitely in the right place at the right time when I got the job at Hanna-Barbera Joe Barbera had literally it was June and he had just sold like you know 25 different series to the various networks that were playing kids animation and Bill Hanna was beside himself and so we didn't we didn't have he, he didn't have the the personnel to make all these shows so I was very fortunate to arrive at that time and he immediately put me to work. I, I was given a, a, a one month trial period because there was absolutely no proof that I could cut, cut the mustard and do the job. But basically I, I worked for 24 hours a day for a month and, you know, managed to keep <laughs> the job. I mean, it, I mean, you've been so successful. You've won. 14 Emmy Awards, uh, at the very least, at least 14 Emmy Awards throughout your career. Are there some awards that have maybe more value to you? I mean, do you at some point after winning 14, like, I don't know, they're like paperweights now to you? I mean, do you still have to equal value each one that you're winning? Or do you just get like, eh, it's another award for myself, whatever, moving on. Well, the, the first night that we I won an award that was for Tiny Tunes, and I won, I think I won like two the, the first night. So it was sort of like the excitement of winning one. I didn't have a lot of time with with that moment because, you know, shortly mm. thereafter, I, I won another one. So it was very fortunate. And, you know, when I say I won, I mean, the first one was the, the, the song, Tiny Toot Adventure theme song, which uh, I wrote the lyrics with Wayne Katz, and the music was by Bruce Broughton, so we shared that. But then Tiny Toons also won the series that year, so I got the producer credit for uh, that. Anyway, over the course of the you know uh, decade or so where we were winning a lot of Emmys, they were for the awards were for producing the show or for writing the show, and almost I mean they were all shared with the other writers, and you know the music ones were shared with the composer Richard Stone. We both one means for like the the animaniacs theme song and for the freakazoid theme song yeah so i mean it's it's great to win the emmys they they don't buy you a cup of coffee in this town i mean a lot of them are being distributed but you know it is it's a nice recognition i think probably the the peabody award i'm told is more prestigious and we won that for animaniacs I mean, that, it's just so awesome to just to have the run of, that run of success. And not only that, though, but it's also you've been able to incorporate your family in as well. You have um, two of your sons also do voice work in your Actually, cartoons. All, all three, um, all three did voice work on my on the cartoons. That, that, that's fantastic. I mean, how how is it to know that your that you could incorporate your family into what you're into your work? And are they now in animation fully, or do they? Is it more like well, a dabble? Luke, the middle son? who he, he did the voice of the flame in Animaniacs. And he was also the voice in Hysteria of Billy the Kid and Big Fat Baby. And he did, he did the little trailer in Animaniacs. He is pursuing animation and, you know, design and that sort of stuff. And I work with him frequently. Nathan, my oldest, who played a Skippy, and he played Frago in Hysteria, and he played Baby Plucky, the voice of Baby Plucky in the Tiny Toons series. He is a filmmaker, a writer, director, and also works in promos on uh, a series called The Real. And uh, Cody, who did the voice of Loud Kiddington and on Hysteria and the Little Bluebird in, in Animaniacs, and was the inspiration of the stories behind Baby Plucky for Tiny Toons. He's an attorney in New York City, and at one of the recent Animaniac Live concerts, he he joined Rob Paulson and Randy Rogel on stage and sang the 12 Days of Christmas as uh, the little bluebird, you know, 20 years later. That's awesome. I mean, you must be extremely oh, yeah. proud. My, 
my kids are just tremendous. I, I admire them. I love them. And, uh, you know, and they were, they were good sports to go along with making the cartoons. I mean, you know, they could have been doing other things. I think on some occasions they would have rather have been, you know, doing their extracurricular activities after school at school rather than off with me. But I thought they did a great job and I'm really glad that we have that. That's a common bond that we share. Now, now, do they grow up watching the cartoons? Oh, yeah, that you they created? consulted. Uh, they were they were my audience. I would bring home uh, scripts <laughs> and storyboards and uh, animatics when we made those. We didn't make many of those, but we made r- the rough cuts of the of the cartoons. I would bring them home, and you know, they would give me their very very you know blunt comments. You know, that's funny, not funny. And <laughs> now, now, are you as, as someone who? the producer of a lot of the cartoons that you're making, you're the writer and everything else. Are you able to enjoy the shows the way your audience can, or do you find yourself when you're watching them um, very critical or um, too busy, maybe analyzing to kind of like getting grossed in it? Well, no, I can enjoy them, but let me just not correct you, but just to point out the fact that I had the funniest writers on earth on these shows on Animaniacs in particular. We had, just brilliant, brilliant writers, Nick Hollander, Sherry Stoner, Paul Rugg, Peter Hastings, Deanna Oliver, John McCann, Charlie Howe, Gordon Bresson. I know I'm forgetting uh, Randy Rogel. We had just very brilliant, clever, funny writers. And yes, I certainly wrote my share of cartoons for the show. And I had my, I put my two cents in most of the, most of the other scripts, but these people, the, these were among the funniest, well, they're the funniest people I've met in my life. And my job at, on Animaniacs in particular was to just go to the recording session, read the scripts, laugh at the scripts, go to the recording session, laugh at the recording session, look at the storyboard, laugh at the storyboard. Then when the cartoons came back, laugh at the cartoons. I, I had I had truly for about three, four years, they're the most joyous job where I was around the funniest people uh, I've ever met. And they were doing extremely funny, brilliant work and made my job very easy and very enjoyable. Well, I mean, like I said, we're, we're definitely going to talk about an, um, anime, but before, before we get to Animaniacs, I did want to ask um, about Batman yes. the Animated Series, which you produce and has become many ways the absolute gold standard for animated series in in tv history almost i mean when people list the best animated cartoons usually batman animated series is either at the top or near the top it's it basically has transcended kids audience to and also made it to it was one of the only primetime cartoons as well but before the cable became a, a major deal how did you get involved with batman the animated well, series i'd say you know as far as action drama animated series. Yeah, I, I, I'd put it right at the top of the list. Brilliantly executed, beautifully rendered. And, you know, got to give a lot of credit to Bruce Tim and Eric Radomski, who just had the the vision and, and the energy to and combined their talents with Eric making the beautiful backgrounds on dark paper where he brought the colors out by adding the light and the color with the pens and ink, but all the backgrounds done on black paper. Bruce Tim, with his brilliant uh, vision and design for the characters. And then you had story editors like Alan Burnett and Paul Dini and and great writers who, who really loved Batman and cared about making great stories. And so... I was involved uh, in the stories early on. I wrote some scripts and did some story editing and helped with the Bible. Fox was giving us a little bit of a hard time early on because we were making a show that they had never seen before. It was, you know, kind of violent, kind of dark, and it was uh, the afternoon block, and they were scared to death of it, and they thought we were out of our mind. And they they thought Bruce and Eric were asking or pushing the envelope too far. And they were even lobbying to, you know, we need a new producer in there. We need someone else to, in charge of the stories and that sort of thing. And my fellow executive producer, I was an executive producer on that show. Gene McCurdy and I tried to, we calmed down Fox. We said, don't, don't worry. It's going to be great. This is going to be a very unique and successful show. So let them do what they're doing because they have a vision that is 
that we can afford to do, which was rare because it's really, it was an expensive show, but we had the money because Batman uh, in the movies was a big hit. So Warner Brothers was cash rich at the moment. And so we convinced Fox to just hands off, let's get this done. And uh, Alan Burnett, of course, uh, showed up to help with the stories and, and Paul Dini. So anyway, that was my involvement early on. And we had, you know, great directors like Kevin Altieri and Dan Reba and, you know, well, Bruce and Eric had a great team. And, and the show just premiered in prime time. It ran on uh, in the Saturday morning. It ran on the weekdays and it, it kicked ass. I mean, it, it's definitely one of my, or maybe the uh, favorite cartoon of mine growing up is extremely important to me. And I, I read that you co-wrote the much beloved episode, The Great Ghost. Is that correct? Yep, that was my episode. And yep, and I, and I pushed for, insisted upon Adam West playing The Great Ghost because he was, he was the Batman of my youth. And so we were playing Bruce Wayne as a kid and his... His show when he was a kid was The Grey Ghost. And so I thought it was appropriate that Adam West play the hero that Bruce Wayne had as a child, just the way Adam West was the hero that Bruce Tim and I had as a child in watching the Batman series. Yeah, I think it's 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 a very successful episode. I think story-wise it's it's successful. I think visually it's maybe not as strong as a a bunch of the the stories. I mean there are a lot of just spectacular looking episodes. But anyway, Great Ghost is a great story. I mean, I, I really did love that episode. And interestingly enough, I think it was announced two or three weeks ago that the Great Ghost officially had been added to the Batman canon, the comic books, as, as someone who I guess he watched growing up. Because, I, I mean, when you think about it, the character, the, sh- the show premiered 30 years ago, and it's still so well-remembered, and Great Ghost is so well-loved that it's still in the writer's minds to incorporate into the current comic books now. And like I said, it was such a well-done show. And, and the, the thing interesting about the show as well is that in some ways, I mean, it, it, with the um, remote control cars and stuff, it's definitely entertaining to children. But there's so many adult themes in that episode as well. Was there ever a concern that some of the themes in that episode were, was going to go over the heads of the kids watching it? Well, I think almost all of my episodes are, and, and I think almost all the episodes of the, sh- of the series are, are not just for kids. I mean, I think they work on levels for adults and for teens and, and for kids. So there are, there are subtle things that the kids aren't going to really care about or even, that won't even register. But I mean, The Great Ghost is, is you know, it, it tells a story of, of a kid who idolized a hero, but... Now, when you're older and you're an adult and you still have this hero from your childhood and now you're meeting him as an adult. I mean, a lot of us have have gone through that experience at like, for instance, at Comic-Con. So I think it hits the fans and and some of the older fans where they live. So I think that works very nicely. I did an episode called It's Never Too Late. And that, that has a lot of adult themes in it, too. It's about friends from childhood who have grown up, and one's, one's gone sort of toward criminal element, the other one's a, a priest. It's sort of a Batman update version of Angels with Dirty Faces, Jimmy Cagney movie. <laughs> so, and we really were making these little movies. I mean, the, the Poison Ivy script that I first, my first script that I wrote for the series, and, and this particular episode starts with a, a dinner between the character of become poison ivy and and harvey dent and it's sort of a romantic dinner and bruce wayne was supposed to join them but oh bruce you know harvey dent talks about his friend bruce wayne and you know he's he's such a stick in the mud he's probably just hanging out at home and and then we slam cut to footage of Batman, where he really is right now. Bruce Wayne is Batman right now, and he's beating the hell out of some convict or some criminal on a rooftop. And we go back to the romantic dinner, and we go back to the action. So it really has a, a feel of a cinematic experience. I, I, I do think that the Batman show had that going for it. Yeah, and 
another story that you worked on, as you mentioned, was Never Too Late, which again was another very brilliant episode. It's another story that has a redemption arc, sort of like The Great Ghost does. Are the ideas of redemption important theme to you and important to you in your work? Yeah, it probably is. I mean, I believe in redemption. I believe in giving people a second chance, third chance. I've made enough mistakes in my life to, to know that I've appreciated when people uh, have given me uh, a second chance in that. I'm all for everyone having uh, the opportunity to make adjustments so that their lives and other people's lives are improved. So yes, I, I, I see that as a theme. So, and, and another great part about It's Never Too Late is that Stromwell visits a drug rehab center where his son is. Was it difficult to get past the censors, the, the idea of drug rehab and the consequences? Well, yeah, I think we, we would always rub against the, the, the network people. I mean, but we were, we were very confident in what we were doing. We, we had success with Tiny Toons. I mean, we, we were the leaders of TV animation at that moment certainly in the uh, kid area. And so it was tough for them to get us to change our ways. We, we, we kind of <laughs> stuck with our stories. There was one thing in, in that particular episode that they, they wouldn't let me get away with. This is in, it's, it's never too late. Batman goes to meet the priest and the original script had him in the church, in the cathedral, and he goes into the confessional and the, the door slides open and, and there's the priest and he's staring into the face of Batman. Batman says, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. And Batman and the priest go on to have this conversation about the, the criminal who's the friend of the priest. And Batman is asking for the priest's involvement, but putting the convict on, on a, a road to uh, salvation. So the conversation ends and Batman leaves the confessional. And at this point, we cut to two altar boys who are at the altar and they're lighting candles. And they see Batman leave the confessional and head out the church. And, and one altar boy says to the other, that's funny. I always thought he was Episcopalian. <laughs> and uh, the network didn't let us do that. Yeah, I wrote a Batman script called uh, One and Only Gun Story. Full full script, you know, half-hour story. And it, and that's maybe my biggest disappointment about the Batman series in that the network ultimately didn't let us make it. And it was literally the story of the gun from its from the raw materials being dug out of the ground that ultimately were used and smelted and that were used in making, manufacturing the gun, you know, the purchase of the gun. We just follow this gun through the hands of, of people. It's stolen and criminals. It goes into a drawer for like three years and comes out. And ultimately it's the gun that slays Bruce Wayne's parents and how this gun ultimately through as we follow it, it ultimately is melted down again at the end of the story and becomes the, the, the materials become the plaque on the grave of Bruce Wayne's parents. And so it was a really, I thought it was a beautiful script and kind of, you know, definitely unique, different the network didn't want to do it. That's okay. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the that episode of December too late, I think just really was brilliant. I, I kind of almost felt that it was almost sort of like a, gangster Batman version of the Christmas Carol, where instead of the ghost, you have Batman taking him through his life a little bit. And, and also I thought it was interesting that you gave, it allowed, it's unusual for a show of superheroes to show the superhero doing things that are good and helpful that don't involve beating someone <laughs> up. And right. I think, you know, and I, and I think the fact that it shows Batman making a difference, an impactful difference mm -hmm. in a way that's nonviolent, I think was very, not only unusual, but fantastic, especially for um, the time that it came yeah. out. Yeah, I, I, I think it holds up. I, I think I got a little grief that it didn't have enough action in that story. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of talk, and it's a legitimate beef. I probably would have figured out some other action stuff in that one if I were to redo it, but it, it definitely works, yeah. I don't know. I think it was perfect the way it is. I think it, it worked because there was little action, because it was 
one of the most character-driven cartoons I think I've, I've ever oh, seen. Yeah. I think it was brilliant. Yeah. So after you finished with Batman, some years, two years later, about, I think two years, maybe a little longer than that, you created two of my other favorite shows, The Animaniacs and Pinky and the Brain. So where did the idea of the Animani- Animaniacs come from? And why were the Warners left as undefined creatures? Well, Animaniacs came from a discussion I had with Gene McCurdy and Steven Spielberg. We had had the success with Tiny Toons, and I think a year after Tiny Toons premiered, it was, you know, killing everybody in the ratings. And Steven and McCurdy came to me and they said, so what's next? And I said, a vacation? No. So Steven wanted to do a a spinoff of... uh, Tiny Toons, like with Plucky Duck as the star, and I and I basically argued that we were we were burned out on Tiny Toons. We had done enough, and I wanted to do something new. I had some new characters in mind, and so basically, while on Tiny Toons, you know, he, it was our first experience together with Mr. Spielberg, and you know, he ne- didn't necessarily trust me to do a, a great job. But now with the success of Tiny Toons. He, he did trust me, and basically he, he said, you know, go for it with Animaniacs. And he wanted a marquee name involved. That's where I came up with the, the Warner Brothers Water Tower. And at that point, Yakko, Wacko, and Smacko were, uh, <laughs> were ducks. And I said, oh, I can have them living in the Water Tower. And then we thought, well, ducks have been overdone. And... So then that's when I realized that the water tower, use the water tower as the, the, the marquee for the show with the WB on it and the characters inside it will be the Warner Brothers and their sister Dot. And we turned them into these generic cartoon characters from the early 30s. And if you ever look at some of those old cartoons, and we all have seen them, they're, you know, the Paul Terry cartoons, they're, they're often silent. They're like Felix the Cat. Warner Brothers made some with Foxy and Roxy, and they made them with uh, <laughs> Buddy. And anyway, uh, Bosco. So we, we basically took the idea of those sort of, you know, very basic cartoon characters from the early 30s. We put like little antenna ears on them and came up with what weren't really, they weren't dogs, they weren't cats, they weren't monkeys, they weren't anything particular. They, they were sort of a generic com- combined version of those rubber hose characters from the early 30s. So we called them, I think, something like cartoonist characterists or something to that effect, like the Latin uh, species of what they were. Anyway, you know, I, I think it's funny that they don't have a specific species mm. or breed. They're their own unique creation. Yeah. So the, int- uh, the thing that is kind of interesting is that it is called Steven Spielberg Presents Animaniacs. How involved was Steven Spielberg? And, you know, is it was it there mostly just to kind of cash in on the name of Steven Spielberg? Or is he... Because I don't, I don't think he's listed as a producer. Or yeah, he's an executive producer, producer show, on Tiny Animaniacs, okay. Pinky the Brain, Freakazoid, Pinky Elmira and the Brain. And so Steven was, I would say, very involved in Tiny Toons. Because, again, he didn't really trust us. So it was like, oh, my gosh, you know, you're going to screw it up. We're, I have to fix it. So Stephen was uh, giving us a lot of notes on stories. When, when we got footage back from overseas and it, it, the line quality wasn't what he wanted, and he absolutely just had a meltdown, he, he actually wrote a note that the line quality is unconscionable. I, re- I vividly re- remember wow. that. And Gene McCurdy and I were wow. on an airplane to Taiwan, uh, literally like uh, within a week to explain to them how important the, the thin line quality is to Stephen. So, so Tiny Toons, definitely he, he got involved in, and certainly the final product. Stephen never wrote anything for any of the shows. He, he, he didn't even come up with the stories. We all, we came up with the stories. We, and he would, he would kill a script now and then if he didn't like it. But he wasn't he he wasn't into the uh, minutia of production. He he was he probably visited the studio in the ten years I, uh, we were working together, maybe four or five times. But we got a lot of phone calls. We got a lot of notes, especially on Tiny Toons. By the time we had were making Animaniacs, Stephen was very comfortable with 
all of us and, you know, had great faith in everything we could do. And he basically uh, wanted us to make a brand new cartoon that was funny and irreverent and so very encouraging. And he also, at that moment, was embarking on both Jurassic Park and Schindler's List. So those movies were his main concern. So Animaniacs, you know, took a back seat to those productions, while we, Animaniacs, was our number one focus. And like I said, we had these brilliant writers, we had brilliant artists, Rich Aarons leading all the directors. Yeah. I mean, the, the other thing about Animaniacs, not only are the lead characters fantastic, but it had a hell of a crew of side characters. You know, Chicken Boo, Kitty Kaboom, Slappy Squirrel. I mean, where, where did all these other characters, did, or, did you create them all as well? I mean, was it like a writer's room where everyone just started pitching, throwing out ideas? No, I, I did not. Some of those, Slappy Squirrel is from Sherry Stoner's Crazy Mind. The, the, the Good Feathers were from Deanna Oliver. Pinky and the Brain and the Warners, you know, I feel like I'm the father of those in that, you know, they, they were my focus and, and the characters that I was really pushing. I was, I was the head of the, the creative team, so, you know, I had my say on everything, and I, I, I would encourage certain, certain teams to, to work on specific characters. I mean, you know, there's Mindy and Buttons. Deanna had a lot to do with them. There's uh, Rita and Runt, Sherry, and all of us had a lot to do with them. Deanna was pushing Chicken Boo. Nick Hollander was doing a lot of Warners, but he was also pushing Katie Kaboom. John McCann was really good at slappy cartoons and the, the pigeons. Anyway, everybody had sort of their specialty. And, and my job was to sort of keep it all going, juggling a bunch of the, the different elements. I, I had to kind of know what was going on with all the different franchises. And I had cards on my wall that each card represented one of the cartoons. And so... I was the one guy that was like reading everything and, and it, giving my input on everything. And for instance, Paul Rugg would be writing a lot of Warner cartoons and he didn't know what the heck was going on with Slappy Squirrel. He, you know, Slappy Squirrel was just not in his rearview mirror. While Sherry, you know, she was doing a lot of Slappy and Deanna was doing a lot of pigeons. So they all had their specialties and I was the guy that had to like keep an eye on all of it. Yeah, and the other thing that was kind of interesting as well is the you had like little short bits, like good idea, bad yeah. idea, um, the wheel of morality. Where did those you know, where where did the, those ideas come from? Were they important because they were quick jokes that you guys just wanted to throw out there, or did they serve a purpose in the show for like transitioning that you wanted to use? Well, we wanted the show to be nuts. We wanted it just be really a smorgasbord of funny cartoons. And we wanted to hold it together too. So we wanted to have the Warners have some additional segments that sort of glued the show together. Maybe there'd be a half hour where the Warners didn't have a major cartoon in it. So we'd want to have a wheel of morality in that so the Warners at least show up. Or we'd have wraparounds where the Warners would come out of this water tower in a balloon or something. Yeah. And also we were building the shows. Each half hour is like 22 minutes, but we weren't making the shows in 22 minute blocks we were making a cartoon e each cartoon you know sherry would come up with a slappy squirrel cartoon idea maybe uh mccann would too and they would both go off and write sla a couple slappy squirrel cartoons uh rug would maybe be working on a couple different warner cartoons peter hastings would be working on a warner's half hour and so anyway everybody was doing a different cartoon and then, so we would script them and then record them and storyboard them and, and get them animated. And, you know, eight months later, we'd have this cartoon and then we'd get the, the music people involved and do the final ADR on the recording and get the sound effects and we'd mix it together and get the final shots cut in. And we would have maybe a seven minute cartoon and we'd have, you know, a five-minute Slappy and a nine-minute Pinky the Brain, and you'd have all these different cartoons. Uh, Peter would do a lot of the Pinky and the Brains, Peter Hastings. That was his thing for sure. And so all these cards were on my wall, and I had to make 22-minute episodes uh, of, of the series. And so I'd take a nine-minute Pinky and the Brain, 
and maybe uh, a seven-minute Warner's and then maybe, you know, a three-minute chicken boo. And if I had extra time, I'd throw in a, a wheel of morality or a mime time or a, you know, good idea, bad idea. So that's how we would build the shows. And quite honestly, it, it, it really works well because those different cartoons, maybe, maybe one was made in March and the other one was made in October. And by putting them together, you were really getting different points of view from different times. And, and, and it made it a real variety show. They weren't all just made like in one week in April. They, they were really from different minds, from different times. And so each half hour had a real uh, bunch of different things going on. Now, when, when you were making it, did, did you know that Pinky and Brain, when, when you made the characters, were, were going to be the, the characters from Animaniacs that, other than the, the main going back when Dot, that would emerge as the loved characters that would go off and be the ones people uh, really caught on to? Well, we, we knew, we, we felt that the Warners were working, Pink and the Brain was working, Slappy and Skippy were working, and uh, we, we felt very confident about all those. So we tended to give them a, a pretty big dose of attention. Then, then there were the Pigeons and Mindy and Buttons and Rita and Runt, and those were sort of like our, our second tier. They were doing fine, but, you know, they weren't getting as much attention. And then after that came the, the, the shorter segments like Chicken Boo and Katie Kaboom and Good Idea, Bad Idea and Mime Time. So, and then there's Colin, you know, Randy Beeman. So, yeah. so I, I think that's pretty much where we were. So when, when, with Pinky and the Brain, when you conceptualized the idea of those two characters, did you, the way you viewed it, did you feel that Pinky was Brainy was with Pinky at a convenience, or did you make did you think to yourself that Brain really did want and need to have Pinky around for something? All right, more you're going to have to ask me that question again because I'm not quite sure I understand it. All right, so when you thought about the relationship between Pinky and All the right, Brain, well, okay. let, let's start start there. So this is a classic duo. This is like Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello. It's it's two, you know unique bipolar character. I mean, the brain is very serious, very smart, and he's got ideas, plans. Pinky is uh, as the mind of a, uh, of a three-year-old. He, he's just, he, he's distracted by a piece of dust in the air. I mean, he's, has <laughs> no real focus. And, but he loves everything and he likes everything. He's not serious. And they were based and, and what made them sort of easy to write for uh, me and for Peter and for others is that they were based on two artists, uh, writers that worked uh, at the studio. Tom Minton, who did, wrote a lot of Tiny Toons and a lot of Animaniacs, was the inspiration for the brain. And Pinky's inspiration was a fellow named Eddie Fitzgerald. And Tom and Eddie would work together and they were in the next office uh, next to mine. And I would hear them in there and, and Tom was soft-spoken and he would very quietly say things and he was very funny. And he would say something very funny and Eddie would be with him and Eddie would, when Tom said something funny, would just explode into laughter. <laughs> and so, but what were they doing in there? I was, I was, I was very curious. It's like, what, you know, it's like they're going to take over the world. What, what are they doing? What are they plotting? <laughs> and so that's that's where the inspiration for Pinking the Brain came from. Now, does Brain Tom and Eddie got together really well? So we have Brain and Pinky getting together very well. But I mean, literally, they were lab mates, the the two mice, and you know, who knows what horrific experiments were perpetrated on those two but uh right, right, the brain right. wound up extra smart and pinky wound up extra goofy and i think i think they've been through things that we don't know about and they are they are they've bonded and they're they're never going to part they are they are friends for life it, they really are such great characters and 
I mean, I know it's probably reading into the cartoon a lot, but I did feel like Brain needed Pinky because he not only is like optimistic, but someone that does look up to him a little bit. I mean, I'm just reading too much into. No, uh, no, you're uh, not. You I know, mean, Brain would cartoon, be. What would Brain know? be without Pinky? He'd be a horrible, lonely, nasty, grumpy, feral monster mouse. <laughs> uh, you know, he does need someone to bounce his ideas off of. Probably needs someone beyond pinky to bounce ideas of it but he's got pinky and that's what's going on and like i said it, it, it was great and i do think it was again reading into the story a little bit that pinky does keep him from probably going too far in his impulses of domination you know kind of i don't know i want to say sanitize him a little bit but probably keeps him at least from being evil <laughs> that yeah, I, sense. I never i honestly don't and i i can't speak for any of the new cartoons but I, I never thought Brain was evil. I don't think he, he has any real genuine evil in him. I think he has ego, and I think he has drive and, and ambition. But I would keep all of those. I would keep all those items in, in as qualities rather than as uh, detrimental. I, I, I don't think he's taken them into a dark place. Yeah, Lisa, I, I really do love those characters and. So, as you mentioned, so obviously Animaniacs has been brought back to Hulu. How involved are you I in the not, new show? I am zero involved. I am not. I have not been involved whatsoever. That I mean, do you still get credit as the creator of the show? Well, though? I am the creator of the show. I, I haven't seen it. I don't. I, I know that they they have me listed because I wrote the songs for Pinky and the Brain. I wrote the you know the lyrics with Richard. Richard Stone wrote the music. I wrote the lyrics for the Animaniacs theme song and the Pinky the Brain theme song. So that credit is there. But what's missing in the credits from what I can tell is, is that the entire series was created by me and a bunch of really brilliant people. And that, the, that so many people that deserve credit aren't getting credit is, is, it's not, is it criminal? I don't know what it is. It's, it's wrong, though. Well, it's definitely inappropriate. Yeah, I mean, did, did you not want to be involved or were you approached? Uh, not approached. My my agent and I went, my agent insisted that they meet with me because they were planning on making the show without without any of the original team, except for the some of the voice actors. And so my agent and I went over there and talked to them and said, you know, I'd like to be involved in some meaningful way. And they said... No thanks, we got this. So that's what that's what happened there. Well, I mean that's unfortunate because I mean, the original Animaniac show and Pinky in the Brain is so timeless. I mean those episodes work just as well in the nine today as they were, did in the nineties. I mean I think if you took the original show Pinky in the Brain and Animaniacs and you aired it now, no one who already knew that they existed would have felt that they were old shows. I, th I think they hold up that well. In, in, in my personal well, thanks. opinion. thanks. Uh, I, I think they're, they're timeless in, in that they're genuinely funny. And, you know, there, there are probably some references that are dated, but in general, I, I think that they work really well. Did you, did you attempt to avoid references that would date the show when you first made it? Or did you make it out of the moment? Um, well, we, we had, I mean, we had Bill Clinton in the main title. Bill Clinton plays the sax where we certainly, you know, we had our occasional Regis Philbin sighting back then. We certainly, there, there were references that were specific to that time, but that wasn't a goal. You see, in all the Animaniacs cartoons, our characters basically exist and existed anywhere in the history of time. So they would go back you know, there was Mesozoic Mindy. There was uh, the Warners helping to paint the Sistine Chapel. Basically, uh, Pinky and the Brain, they, they, they could exist anywhere in time. So I don't think the show really is dated as it is. It is it's a time travel show almost. I mean, it's, it's a variety show, but it can take place anywhere. So, like I said, those shows I think were brilliant. What are you working on now? Uh, I have several different projects that if I tell you, then then when I go and pitch them, they won't be fresh. So I I, I can't really <laughs> say what they are, the titles are. But, you know, I, I'm working with some great people. Some uh, of the people that we all know from the shows 
that we're talking about, but and, and some new people. Anyway, I'm very excited. Now, are these going these going to be animated uh, series yes, as well? I am. I'm sticking with the animation. Very cool. Like I said, well, when you are ready to announce them, I definitely hope you come back on the show oh, and sure. talk well, to me about them. Let's stay in touch. You. And uh, yeah, that'd be great. Well, like I said, I, I really, well, a couple of things. I, I thank you for making the shows I grew, up, I grew up on that were important to me. Like even to get to mention that you did uh, Master of the Universe, an episode of it, and that was fantastic. Thank you for all the work that you've done in making the shows that I grew up on. And thank you for spending your time with me. It was, you've been well, fantastic. it's been a pleasure, Jeff, and I hope we get to speak again soon. Same here. Thank you. Have a fantastic night, sir. And we're back. That's right. We are back. Back in the saddle again. Well, <laughs> I hope you guys really, really enjoyed that as much as we did making it for you. And if you like what you heard and you want to hear more, you got to go check out spoilerverse.com because at spoilerverse.com, we have a plethora. Plethora is such a, it's such a snobbish word. <laughs> I like it though. <laughs> It's, it's a good word. <laughs> we have an obscene amount of oh, interviews obscene. with amazing directors and artists of all walks of life and editors and writers. And oh my God, are you a lover of comic books like we are? And then there's so many. so many amazing people from the comic book world over at spoilerverse.com. And I highly implore you to go there and check it out. Yeah, and while you're there, you can check out all the other podcasts on our network, like Bridges and Geekdoms and Funny Book Forensics and Haphazard Adventures and Nerds in the Crypt and so many more. Misery Point Radio. Episodes all the time. Misery Point Radio has got a ton of great stuff out there. Go check all of them out. And check out all of the reviews and previews and articles we have going up every single day for you, every day on Swillivers.com for you to check out, to read, and to love, and to like, and to comment. We have a store link. You want to help support the site? We do it two ways. One, go to our Patreon, which is just patreon.com slash country, or go to our store link in the middle of the site there and get a t-shirt, a face mask, a hoodie, something. Look fly as hell and help support the site when you do that because we get a dollar or two. And, you know, maybe you want to talk to us. If you do, you can do it you know, obviously on all the socials, but if you go to scpod.us slash discord, you can join our public discord server and come chat with us all day long. I couldn't say it better myself, dude. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. You just mouthed out a ton of information at once. And really, <laughs> I hope you guys enjoy what you're hearing because we're, we're working our butts off to bring it to you. We are. We are. I guess there's only one left thing. One left thing? Yeah. I'm going to go with it. There's only one left thing left to do. What's that? In an oceans of podcasts, we are Cthulhu. As Cthulhu compels you to do. Open the mind. And... Even more.